All right. Well, we are in uh, the sixth part of a series that uh, I've just titled Parabolic. And uh, the word parable comes from the Greek word parabola. And if you remember your wonderful geometry and all the math stuff, you remember the exciting parabolas. Parabola. It's almost a chant. Parabola. Parabola. It's exciting. Parabolas are exciting. And, uh, okay, not really. And so I tried. I tried to make it exciting. They're not. But one thing about parabolas is is that uh, they're, they're unique in the fact that as they define by their uh, mathematical equation, all parabolas have this central focus point. And as we are studying the parables, if we don't remember that Jesus was trying to communicate a central idea, a central focus. Now, a lot of times you can read into stuff, into parables, that can kind of not really be there. And so we have to remember that Jesus is using these pointedly to communicate a central focus and a central idea. Well, this week we're on what a lot of scholars believe to be the most difficult of the parables to understand. We're in Luke Chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. And this is a parable that, man, you, you read the beginning of it, and you read it, and you're like, what? Why is Jesus saying this? Why is he using this example? Couldn't he think of anything better? What is the deal here? And uh, so we're just going to read through this together right quick. There in verse 1 of chapter 16, I'm reading from the NIV, it says, Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, Man, what shall I do? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. Hmm, I know what I'll do. <clears throat> if I lose my job here, I want people to welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. And he told him, take your bill and make it 800. And then the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. We're going to pause right there for just a second. These first eight verses, man, they just great up against your Christian principles. You're like, wah! What is the deal with this guy? And all of a sudden, he gets the pat on the back at the end of this story. What is the deal here? He's been a jerk of an employee. He's wasted all this stuff. He's finally, the, the employer's been nice to him and given him a heads up that he's about to lose his job. You know, he didn't just say, boom, out of here. And then he takes this window of opportunity that that he knows I'm about to be out of here. I've got this short window. And then he decides to do something and really whoop, gouge this guy one more time and use this other guy's resources to his own personal benefit because this transition is showing up. I'm about to not be manager anymore. I'm a weak man. I can't dig. And I'm just, 
I'm too proud to beg. And what am I going to do? Man, I'm gonna, I got a plan. I'm going to make all of these folks love me. And they're going to take me into their homes. And then they're going to take care of me. And so, man, that just, that just sounds so crazy. Why would Jesus pull up this kind of a story? It's like him pulling up some sort of, you know, this one of these Ponzi scheme stories, you know, that have been in the news lately or some sort of Enron cooking the books thing that we saw and saying, oh, here we go. This is, this is how things need to go. I'm pulling that out. This may have been one of those stories. He may have had grabbed a current event story and that everybody had been talking and whispering about what had gone on. It may have been a story Jesus just created and told a, a fictitious story to communicate a deal. But on the surface, man, you can see, wait a second, man, this is, um, you know, it's okay for me to be a jerk employee. You know, it's okay for me to use things for my own advantage. You know, Jesus tells this story. No, 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 no. Whenever for us to get to the central idea of what Jesus communicated, we have to get to how he interpreted his own parable, what he wanted us to take away. And he left no, he left it not, he didn't leave anything to guesswork. He completely laid it out. So as we go through here, we're going to just systematically go through. And there were six key things that Jesus was communicating through this head scratching, grab your attention, what are you doing here, Lord, parable. So in the first one, so Jesus gives us the key things that he wants us to take away from this story. Jesus himself tells us. So let's look here, and we're going to finish up verse 8. His manager had given him the old pat on the back, commended him because he had, uh, his master had, had, because he had acted shrewdly. And, says, and then Jesus says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Jesus was wanting us to be wise in dealing with others. Jesus wanted us to have some, some shrewdness about dealing with others. He did not want his followers to be the chumps that everybody preys on. He did not want us to be the bunch of gullible people that fall for every little thing. He wanted there to be some wisdom. He says, look, this guy was shrewd in dealing with these other people. We, are, we <clears throat> begin to... Uh, uh, we begin to look at that too many times that believers are some of the most gullible people on the planet. Any of y'all, you know, use your email account and get forwards? You know, you get forwards from this and forward from that, this little story and that little story. And I I hardly ever forward anything. You hard, you will like never get it. I'm not against people who forward. I'm, I'm not anti-forwarding folks. Um, and so, uh, but I just don't. And um, uh, and for one of the reasons is because I don't have time to research everything that got sent to me, and I'm just not going to pa pass it blindly on. And one of the examples is, has any of y'all got the email before about the uh, the bill that's before Congress that Madeline Murray O'Hare and her organization presented to get rid of all Christian broadcasting, radio, television, all that kind of stuff? That never happened. Never, never petitioned the U.S. government, never wrote it. The bill was never written. Dr. Dodson never asked for people to write their congressman. That never happened. 
I mean, you just Google just for a minute and put that in your little Google box, and everything comes up. Hoax, hoax, da 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 da. One blog calls it the lie that won't die. It just keeps surfacing, and part of it is is because you know we understand as believers that you know that our faith is under attack. Of course, Madeline Murray O'Hare had already forefronted and got prayer out of school, so it totally everything kind of totally fits the picture and it doesn't send a red flag other than the fact that we don't want this to happen but so many this just keeps recirculating it keeps going and the the names will change back when it originally came out dr dobson wasn't big so his name wasn't attached to it and then it resurfaces and now dr dobson is attached to it and asking you to do this and there have literally been i mean tens of thousands of letters been written and sent which i'm glad that people you know, if they thought there was something to be upset about, boy, they took action. I'm thankful for that. But there was no research that went behind it. Too many times we are gullible on different things. Um, you know, the uh, old P.T. Barnum was given the quote that actually he never said, but with that uh, there's a sucker born every minute. So he actually never said that. But um, too many times believers are those suckers. Too many times we are the the ones that are doing that. And <clears throat> whenever we look at this, we have to make sure that we are weighing things by the fruit and that we are taking into account the cost. We need to make sure that we take a lesson from our founding fathers, which our founding fathers, so many of them, the large majority were strong Christians and were in their heart and in their purpose were establishing a Christian nation and so these guys were they were establishing a Christian these guys were Christians while they were doing this in fact here's some of the quotes Patrick Henry who who said you know give me liberty or give me death I mean he was one of the radicals that just really pushed he's considered one of the most three influ most <clears throat> one of the three most influential people in lobbying for revolution I mean he just was he just was at it and he says it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists but by Christians, not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is the Christianity and, and Christ was just woven throughout uh, the fabric of our nation being birthed. We have John Quincy Adams, who was the sixth president. His daddy was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and our second president. He says, John Quincy Adams says this, looking back at the revolution. He says, the highest glory of the American Revolution was this, that it connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government and the principles of Christianity. They were very purposeful in the idea of Christianity being connected with who we are as a nation. George Washington! George Washington! in his farewell address as he is saying goodbye as president as he is laying down and they wanted him to run again at that point there was no term limitation everybody followed for years and years and years everybody just followed his example George only held two terms so the most anybody's gonna hold is two terms it was just precedence and he set that and knew that it, we weren't gonna shift back into a monarchy 
Anyways, on his farewell address, George Washington says, Do not let anyone claim the tribute of American patriotism if they ever attempt to remove religion from politics. George Washington said that. I mean, they were, they were solid Christians. They tied everything in here. But at the same time, they were not just gullible individuals that were just do anything. They very much counted the cost. They knew what they were getting into when they did it. When our forefathers signed the Declaration of Independence, they pledged for the support of this declaration with our firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence. We mute, so they're, they're putting God in play. Divine, protection of divine providence. They're put, keeping God in play, but at the same time they understand what is at stake. Too many times us as believers, we just sit back and be gullible and say, well, I'm just, I'm just trusting in God, I'm just doing this, and not understand what's at stake. We don't understand, we don't count the cost. Because what comes next, it says, on the protection of the divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. They knew that the whole thing was on the line, that if they did not work, they were not patriots, they were traitors, and were going to die traitors' deaths. They understood what was on the line. <clears throat> One of the things Jesus so wanted of of his followers was to have that kind of thing to so be devoted to him to understand to rely on his divine providence but to understand what's really on the line that's the whole thing about him commending the the shrewd <clears throat> the shrewd uh, manager yeah he had done some he, he did these despicable things but he understood what was on the line he was about to shift and have, have a huge transition he used his resources that were available to him to make sure that that transition went well for him. He dealt more shrewdly. Too many times we as believers, we aren't wise in our dealings with other things. And Jesus wants us to be. He didn't want us to just be the, the local punching bags. <clears throat> he wanted us to be able to be wise. Matthew ten sixteen says, I, Jesus is telling them, says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves there is this thing that that so many times we we connect innocence with naivety somebody just not being aware and therefore they operate in this place of innocence Jesus wants us to be in this place where we are shrewd, where we understand what has taken place, but yet we are innocent. Do you think there's anything on this planet, no matter how wicked and despicable, God isn't aware of every detail? He completely is aware, but yet God is completely innocent. God is as pure and as holy as it gets. And as we... As believers grow, so many times we have had to repossess land as believers because we stayed out of it because it was a it was a, a dirty area. Oh man, when TV first came on, oh it's just a bunch of filth. We don't want anything to do with that. Don't own a TV. Don't want to be on TV. Well, man, now we're believers are believers could have been on the forefront of that. 
And now we're having to spend tons of money to try to buy stations from people who were way ahead of the curve, and they're making all the money on us. We could have been in on the ground floor. Why? Because we weren't shrewd. We didn't see the possibilities. We didn't see where this thing could go. We didn't see that we could be as smart as snakes but still maintain our innocence. They're not on two ends of the spectrum. It's how we're going to walk this thing out. We walk it out in this place of innocence. 1 Corinthians 14.20 says, Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants. But in your thinking, be adults. Now, if you want to read a book that will just challenge you, um, there's a book called No Perfect People Allowed. And... uh, I tell you what, it's a fantastic ministry taking place in Austin, Texas, under a pastor named John Burke. He wrote the he wrote the book, and uh, I mean they're dealing with stuff that'll just man peel your toenails off. I mean it just you're like nah, people don't do that. What are you talking about? You know, and they're having they're these people there are people there that are just in some messed up stuff. And they're, they say, no perfect people allowed. Come as you are. And they mean it. And they're having to deal with some really messed up, crazy stuff and walk people out of this. And, oh, it's fantastic. Man, but so many times, man, we would, there was this minimal level of righteousness somebody had to be at before they were ready for the church. You know, you had to kind of take a half a bath or something before you jumped in the shower. You know, and the churches shouldn't be that way. We ought to be able people to just be able to come the way they are, be comfortable, and let the Word of God challenge them and let the Holy Spirit take them to the next place. That's the way we have to be, and to be able to do that, to be able to do our assignment, because that is our assignment. And if it makes you uncomfortable to sit on the same row with a practicing homosexual, then this might not be your church. Because they've got to come in and hear the word of God, and it may take them a little while before they walk out of that in the freedom that Christ has. It may take them a little while. And we have to love them while they're walking. We have to. It is our assignment. And we won't walk away from it. And to do that, we have to be as shrewd as snakes and maintain our innocence maintain our innocence maintain our love for people maintain our love for god we can't be walking around like little infants we have to think like adults Ooh, wow let's move we got to use money for eternal purposes this is the second one that was what the whole one of the key points is jesus is trying to get across the next thing we say is <clears throat> after he reads for the people of this world are more shrewd in their dealings with their own kind than are the people of the light i tell you use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings whenever he's talking about this friends for yourself it's not just your buddies here he's talking about he's connecting that to having a relationship with god to use what the resources we have with an eternal mindset this guy understood that a transition was coming a death for him was showing up he wasn't going to be manager anymore everything that he had had access to was no longer going to be he wasn't going to have access he only had access to it for a little bit longer 
And then this big transition was showing, and he made sure that what he did with what he had access to made that when that transition came, he was in a good place. Ultimately, we're only going to be on this planet so many years, so many days, so many hours. A transition is coming for all of us. And we have to make sure that the things that we get put in our hands, we use with that kind of mindset, with this eternal mindset, or living for something bigger. I'm so grateful that our forefathers did that. Man, they saw something bigger. All of the guys that signed the Declaration of Independence, all of them are wealthy. All of them were doing great. They, they, these guys were these guys weren't sitting there and broke, busted, and disgusted and hoping we could have some sort of revolution so they could like own something. They already owned the land. They already owned these things. They weren't trying to to just push the British out so they could take everything the British. Out. They were sitting there and they were wanting to protect what they had all what had already been entrusted to them and believed in freedom and liberty. When we look at these guys, they lived for something beyond themselves. Like we talked about, they already we talked about the fact that they pledged their lives and fortunes and sacred honor. They were so willing to use their resources for something that was bigger than them, that was of greater purpose. Five of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were captured as traitors and tortured before they died. Five of those guys. And they knew it. They knew that was on the line. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned to the ground. You know, we just we watch The Patriot every year. You know, we watch it every year. We watched it this year. It's a great movie. But to to <clears throat> to watch as his as they come in and they torch his home and he's just leaving as it's just burning to the ground. I mean, that's not just movie drama. This happened to these guys, and they knew it was a possibility. When their homes got torched, they didn't go, Oh, my goodness, where did that come from? I didn't know I was signing up for that. They knew. They knew it was a possibility, yet they lived for something bigger. They lost sons in the Revolutionary War. There were sons who were captured and held as prisoners. Nine of these guys that signed the Declaration of Independence lost their lives fighting on the front lines. They didn't just sign and say, Woo, somebody go and fight for me. They signed, they put it, and they held the musket, and they were in there. They were generals. They were colonels. And they lost their lives along with the rest. At the Battle of Yorktown, the, the famous noted battle where everything comes to a head, Thomas Nelson Jr., again, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, <clears throat> noted that uh, General Cornwallis had taken over his home and set up headquarters in his home. The war is almost over. It's almost over. He could be back in his home living again, but they have holed up there, and he tells George Washington, not triumphantly, History book says he does it almost with a sigh. Blow it up. Shoot it. Destroy it. They understood what was going on. He's willing to give for a greater cause. Francis Lewis of New York, again one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, had his home and properties destroyed. The enemy jailed his wife and she died in jail. They understood everything that was on the line 
John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying. He knew she was dying, and he, he had to leave. They had 13 kids. And in the melee of the attack there on his home, his kids ended up one, running off, just fleeing. He had no idea where his kids ended up. He spent the next few months hiding and scavenging in the area, coming back and forth, hoping one of his kids would return, and basically ends up dying of a broken heart. His wife is gone. His children is gone. Everything. It was just more than he could bear. We have to rem we have to remember that while we're here on this earth, yes, God has called to live us abundant, blessed lives. Absolutely. Yeah, I think God has called us some sort of suffering for Jesus thing, just for the sake of suffering. No. But I do for sure know that Jesus has told us here in this parable that we are to live our lives and take the things that God puts in our hands for a bigger purpose than just a sweet, cushy life here. We have to live with an internal mindset. Jesus went to the cross with an eternal mindset. The forefathers signed that document and waged a five-year bloody war with a long-term mindset. We have to be willing to do that. 1 Timothy 6, 18-19 says, Command them that do to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they'll be able to take hold of the life that is truly life. How wonderful it is that we get to trade this life that's fading away and we get to do things here that benefit a life that is truly life. Second Corinthians 5.1 says, <clears throat> Now we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built with human hands. That we are pilgrims here. We're not to live like there's no tomorrow. We're to live like tomorrow is forever. And that changes everything. Because our real tomorrow is forever. The next thing we see that Jesus wanted us to take away from this is to see the big in the little. It says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Then we have to embrace and see the big inside the little. <clears throat> there in uh, Zechariah 4.10, it says, Who despises the day of small beginnings? How foolish it is to despise the day of small beginnings. Almost everything gets going in small fashion. God created everything to have these small beginnings, and we should not despise small beginnings. It says men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. When you start a building project, one of the first things you do is you pull out that plumb line. You begin, and all of a sudden that may seem insignificant, but that's the beginning of the project. That woohoo! Rejoicing begins then. The small beginnings. Now, our history books, do we, as far as battles go, the, the shot that's heard around the world, is was that some huge, ginormous battle that had you know, tens of thousands of troops lined up? No, it's this little bitty, teeny skirmish. Lexington Concord. 
shot heard round the world seemingly not a bit at that time i guarantee you those guys didn't feel like that they were Woo! we've just changed the world here no but things shifted with small beginnings man i tell you what that's why you and i cannot get frustrated that we are not growing any faster we want to grow in Christ as fast as we possibly can. But you know what? As we sit there and we go and we, we allow the Holy Spirit to work on us. Man, I remember in college, man, I was so frustrated with just my immaturity and all this different thing. I just so wanted God to just transform me quick. And God finally had to show me that I've, I've got a lot of obedience that I haven't done or else I'd be further along this road than I am. And that I need to take that step by step, and he will grow me as fast as I will obey. My road to growth in him is as quick as my next step of obedience. That's as fast as I can go. And we have to not despise the fact that that step isn't very big, because it gets us to the next one, and it gets us to the next one. This great recession thing that we're in the middle of, or whatever you want to call it, all of a sudden, we're seeing people starting to save money. Savings rates have just all of a sudden jumped up. People are saving 8, 10, 12% of their income. When used to, we had a negative 2% savings rate. How can you have a negative 2% savings rate? Yeah, it's called Visa. Discover. I discovered more money. Ooh, I got a raise. And, uh,. All of a sudden, things turned around, and I think the reason, one of the core reasons is, is because it's not that exciting to see 50 bucks extra or 100 bucks extra in your savings account every month. The first couple of months, you check it. Wow. That's just not that impressive. <gasps> and you despise the small beginning. And then it never builds steam. It never gets going. I don't have time to get into all of it, but uh took the kids to a um birthday party years ago and the kid that was going to he didn't have he didn't need a toy, he didn't have anything that he needed. Um but I knew that his family had set up a mutual fund for him and that the kid actually liked the mutual fund, thought it was cool, liked seeing it grow. And so we gave our kids some some cash each and then for you know this young man's birthday then they went and handed him the cash and said this is for your mutual fund put it in your mutual fund and oh he was pumped he was excited about it you know you don't hardly see seven-year-olds that are excited about that but he's excited about that and uh so when the party was over um you know brooklyn came up to me and she was like eh, dad that just felt like a ripoff you know i wish we'd have given him a toy or something what what kind of sorry deal was that and uh, so I took her into the office, and we sat down, and I said, well, here, I want to I show you. Um, I said, because, you know, he's seven, and let's say that he doesn't touch the money you gave him till he's 67. Okay? We're going to look at this and what you gave him towards his later years. So we plug it in and, of course, use the standard 12% that the market has done over the lifetime of the market. It's not done it this year or last year, but over the history of the market, it does. It averages 12%. And uh, ran that out, and all of a sudden she began to see that her her piece of it that she gave her five dollar bill gave put put aside him over six thousand dollars 
for retirement, that that $5 bill was going to greet him 60 years later at 6000 bucks. She's like, whoa. And I said, yeah. I said, and your brothers gave $5, and this brother gave 5 Look at all that. I said, that was a great gift. I said, this young man understand it. That's why he was excited. He knew what that 5 bucks was going to be whenever he got to be 67 years old. And so as we were churning on it, and then we finally decided about, you know, the idea. She's like, well, you know, well, <clears throat> let's talk some more about this. We ended up talking for like two hours. You know, Brooklyn was like 10 years old or 9 years old about finance and investing. It was just insane. But it is amazing. So we just finally decided to run this calculation. And she's because about building family wealth and all this stuff. So I said, well, we take a dollar. I said, we take a dollar when you're your age right now. I said, and that we're going to hold it, and we're going to leave it alone, and you're going to pass it on to a great-grandchild when you're 80. And you're going to pick one great-grandchild that's just really smart and is going to protect your dollar. Because remember, this is just a dollar. We're not doing anything. This is just a dollar. And you're going to hand off your, your dollar that's been invested and left alone as if you could invest a dollar. And... Uh, and so she said, okay, so we do that. We run the calculations, and at, when, uh, at 50 years later, then uh, we, we check up on it. It's $391. That's a big increase over a dollar, but, I mean, that's, you know, that's not overly exciting. You know, there was a number of things she wanted that cost more than $391. And uh, so then we, uh, we check up on it again and say, okay, you, you leave it alone, and you pass it on, and you tell her to commit Tell your great-grandchild to commit that she's going to leave your dollar alone until she's 80. We're leaving this thing alone for 160 years. So you pass it on, and then she passes on. We're leaving this thing alone for 160 years. One dollar left alone is 198 million and change after 160 years. That's a long time. That's two people's lifetimes. But, I mean, it's just a dollar. We went ahead and decided to go and say, okay, we're gonna, she's going to pass it on, and she's going to make that one hold it till they're 40, and then they can start doing something with it, and then they can start enjoying it. Another 40 years, and it's $23 billion. One dollar left alone, allowed to do. One dollar isn't exciting, but if you despise the small beginnings, you never get to the other end. That's one of the reasons, man, God tells us and uses so many times the analogy of a seed. Because it's not much. You know, as the farmer, as he's sowing, a couple of extra seeds fall out. He's not on his hands and knees looking, ah, I've got to have that seed. You got some more. It's not something you value typically in and of itself. But, man, it is so powerful and it does so much. We have to, Jesus is telling us here to see the big in the little. When our forefathers were doing that constitution and putting the constitution together, they saw the big. They could already see us going from sea to shining sea. They set everything up on how a new state was going to come into the union. They began to set everything up. They began to look at these different things, begin to put these things together. Why? Because they could see the big and the little. We have to be able to do that. We're going to cruise through these next ones pretty quick. <clears throat> we can't, uh, the, another, the next point that Jesus wanted us to make sure we understood was if we mishandle the worldly stuff, then we will miss out on the true rich, riches. There's a story of this bank robber in Los Angeles, who, uh, which most people decide to rob banks because they weren't very good at making money on their own. 
And uh, so he decides he's going to get him some riches. So, But he doesn't want to have to walk out of there with it. So he's just brilliant. And he goes up to the, he goes up to the clerk and has his gun in her face. And he says, take all the money and put it in my checking account. Dead serious. It really happened in L.A. <gasps> Dead serious. <gasps> you know, there's this, there's, there's this thing that goes with it. I mean, with the checking account, anybody can eat totally easy. The, the money hadn't gone anywhere. It's still safe in the bank, and they totally get it back. Um, track him down, too. Woo! I didn't use my real name. <laughs> Um, but if we mishandle the worldly stuff, then God's not going to trust us with true riches. That's why it's so vital that w- that we be diligent stewards over these, over the the worldly things, because the true riches, which is true riches, is love and joy and peace and goodness. True riches is people and getting to minister to people. Those are the things that are truly important to God. You got to remember, He used gold as paving. You gotta remember that. We gotta put everything in God's perspective. True riches, you know, you use the biggest pearl you can think of as a gate. You know, my dog gnaws on my gate at the house. Uses the biggest pearl you can think of as a gate. True riches are our people. And we have as we are faithful in these little things, and we're faithful with the worldly things, then that's when God entrusts us with true riches Luke 12:19 through 21 says I'll say to myself you have plenty of good things laid up for many years take life easy eat drink and be merry but God said to him you fool this very night your life will be demanded from you then you'll get what you've prepared for your then who will get what you've prepared for yourself this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God when we look even just looking at today's proverb what we read in our as we're reading together the proverb for today it says whoever trusts in riches will fall but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf last thing we want to or the next couple of things is take care of someone else's and then we would get our own it's so impressive to <clears throat> to find out that uh, President John Adams was committed to freedom and liberty and justice no matter what side that aligned him with. And in uh, March of, 19, of 1770, this thing called the Boston Massacre takes place. And tensions were high. They, they, they had more troops had been stationed here to enforce some of the acts and some of the taxes that nobody liked. And uh, there, were, <clears throat> there was a lot of tension in the street. Pretty soon some of the colonists began to riot and begin to pelt and hit the, some of these soldiers and uh, initially it started out there was just one soldier who was getting attacked and they deployed some some backup it's back, it's, it gets more and more and finally shots are fired and three people die immediately two people die later from their injuries and and so this is just this terrible thing and all the colonists there was just this outrage but John Adams actually stood and took the, took defense of the of the redcoats of the British soldiers who were acting in self-defense and preserved because these the colonists were rioting and they had to bring some peace and they had and they were being attacked and they had to they had to do it and in fact he helped all but two of them get 
completely acquitted, completely acquitted. And the other two, their sentences, they got to do via penance. And so they didn't actually have to be executed or serve prison time. And uh, he was committed to freedom and justice. Freedom and justice weren't something that just sounded good so you could have a revolution. Freedom and justice is something they were committed to. And, uh, we have to make sure that <clears throat> as, they were, as they were going forward with this revolution, they weren't, it wasn't just about, about somebody else or about their own freedom. They were about, it was about other people's freedom. They were committed and faithful in someone else's and eventually got their own. Numbers 12.7 says, <clears throat> But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Moses was faithful. That was what God is looking for. Psalms 101.6 says, My eyes will be on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He whose walk is blameless will minister to me. And 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Faithfulness is absolutely vital. And the last thing we see is that <clears throat> you can only serve one master. That's what Jesus says there in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus used this obscure, strange parable to drill these six things into these folks. That money has a bigger, grander impact than simply financial consequences. It is a reflection of our hearts. It is a reflection of so many different things. When king after King George lost the battle and lost the colonies, um, he actually wrote out um, a, uh, a letter where he was going to abdicate the throne. He was just going to, he was done. And uh, ended up not, not doing it. And he kind of got a little bit excited when they found out that, um, that, uh, George Washington was placed in as president because he was convinced that it was just going to turn into another monarchy and that they were going to want King George back, that the old monarchy was going to be better than the cruel new monarchy. And then he couldn't believe it when he found out that, <clears throat> that George Washington was going to, to not, was going to resign his commission in the military he knew that all that he was going to step down and he said this to those people whenever he heard it. he says if he does that he will be the greatest man in the world to have completely liberated a country and then to step back and let them put the put everything in place he was not guaranteed the office of the presidency everybody was pretty sure that he was going to be but he was not guaranteed it and he liberates them and steps back and says, okay, I'm committed to this political process. He did not have two inward agendas. He didn't have his own and then this thing for freedom and liberty. He was committed to the one. We can only have one master. But this morning, ultimately, we're all, we're all going to only have sh one master. We're either going to be a slave to ourselves or we're going to be a slave unto Christ. We're going to be a slave to our jobs and money, or we're going to, or we're going to be committed to the things God, things of God, and be committed to Him. We can't divide ourselves; it won't happen. 
But ultimately, to be committed to God, we have to have a relationship with God. So if this morning, if you're here, then uh, and, and you don't know, you don't know Christ, you don't have a relationship with God, then we're about to give you an opportunity to do that. If everybody could just bow their heads and close their eyes.